Good morning, everyone. Nice to be with you here today. Be helpful if you could keep that passage open and we're going to reflect on what God's message uh, might be for us this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, please quieten our minds and hearts so that we can hear what you have to say to us. Help us to trust it, uh, to rely on it and to live by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I really enjoy trivia. You know, questions and answers of ver- on various topics which may or may not be that important. So in my opinion, a good night out is a night out at a trivia quiz. And if you want me to play a board game with you, Trivial Pursuit is likely to get me out of the house and coming around. Now, if I'm ever involved in a trivia competition with you, what you need to know is that my strengths are geography and travel, sport and entertainment where entertainment relates to rock and pop songs from the 70s, 80s and 90s. In fact, so good was my knowledge of rock music from the 70s, 80s and 90s that when I was growing up, this was known amongst my friends. And I recall one afternoon in the early 1990s, I was working as a lawyer in the city and I had a friend called Stuart who worked in the advertising industry. And apparently he and his friends from work had been having a big chat and the song from the 1980s, Pass the Duchy, came up. And they were trying to think, who on earth sung Pass the Duchy? Now, this was before the internet, so you couldn't do a Google search. So my friend Stuart said, I know, I've got this friend called Stephen Liggins, we're going to ring him up and find out who who sung it. So in the office, he puts it on speakerphone and rings me up. And so I get this call, oh, Stuart, uh, Stephen Stewart here, Um, tell me, who sung Pass the Duchy? Now, do you know? (laughs) Well, musical youth. They're one-hit wonders from the 1980s. And as I said, musical youth in half a second, I heard all this cheering on the other end of the phone. I think the whole office was listening in. Now, sadly, I probably get more enjoyment out of remembering that incident than perhaps is really warranted. Um, (laughs) But um, while, uh, you know, trivia questions and answers aren't really that important, there are other questions and answers which obviously really do matter. So, you know, questions and answers in a test or in an exam or in the HSC. And then there are other questions which we ask in life which are also much more important. Uh, Questions, I guess, like, um, you know, um, should I take that job? Who should I marry? Where should I live? Big questions. And then, of course, there are the far more painful questions which so often come up for us. Those questions relating to all those horrible things starting with the letter D. You know, disappointment, uh, depression, devastation, destruction, divorce, disease, death, right? These questions which, uh, these things come up and we often find ourselves asking questions like, um, you know, why or why me or why them or, um, you know, how could this happen? And we ask those questions to ourselves, we may ask them to others, But of course, often we cry out those questions to God, don't we? When we feel like we're sinking, we're going down to the abyss, we're overwhelmed, we're at our wit's end. Well, the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk seems to be asking a question of this sort to God. And his question is basically, why, God, do you tolerate evil? Why do you put up with it? Now, I think it's a question which many people have asked through the centuries. And it's probably a question that you may have asked at some point or other. Now, if you want to reflect on that question and get get a sort of good response from it, uh, this morning is, of course, a good passage for you 
to look at. Now today we're continuing our term three series in the Minor Prophets, we've just done three weeks in the book of Amos and today we start and finish, in fact we do it all today, the book of Habakkuk. Uh, one week it's a three chapter book. Now if you picked up an outline on the way in and you can look at the screen, I'm firstly going to introduce you to Habakkuk and then we're going to look at a couple of questions and answers uh, between God and Habakkuk uh, in chapter 1 verse 2 through to the end of chapter 2 and then we're going to see the prayer that Habakkuk prays at the end of all this. So, let's start by looking at firstly Habakkuk, chapter 1 verse 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. Now, not a lot is really known about Habakkuk but from the events and incidents and issues described in the book, we can figure out that it took place sometime before Babylon had invaded Judah. And so a date of around 610 BC or thereabouts has been suggested. Now, if you were here in recent weeks, we're looking at the prophet Amos. He was prophesying around about 750 BC. So this is about 140 years later, okay? Amos had been up prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. Habakkuk, 140 years later, is down in the southern kingdom of Judah. And unlike other minor, or many of the other minor prophets, Habakkuk's book is not so much, here's a message of God to his people, you know, repent or you'll be judged. It's not that sort of uh, book. The book of Habakkuk more describes uh, an interaction between Habakkuk and God on the topic of justice. Okay, so let's look at the interaction between Habakkuk and God. So point two, questions and answers which is most of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Let's look, look from chapter 1, verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Well, there it is, isn't it? You know, God, why do you tolerate all this evil in Judah. And it's not just a bit of evil, the occasional bad action from a rotten apple or a bad egg, it seems to be pretty comprehensive, it's widespread and it's devastating. So in these opening verses which I've just read, it's already referred to injustice and wrongdoing and he continues in the second half of verse 3, he says, destruction and violence are before me, there's strife and conflict abounds, Therefore, the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So, there's the issue. Then, in answer to Habakkuk's question here, and this will be a great relief, Habakkuk is about to learn that the wrongdoings will be punished. Look at verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. And then it continues on in that vein. Now there is an encouraging but also a disturbing aspect 
to God's response here. It's encouraging because Habakkuk learns that Judah is going to be judged. Justice is going to be done. Great! Because I think most of us, most of the time, want justice. I recently heard a talk on Generation Z. Generation and Z are the 11 to 28-year-olds of today, so perhaps your kids or your grandkids, your neighbours or people you teach or whatever, both my children are Generation Zers. And this is the generation which has grown up with the social media and the smartphone and they're perceived to have various qualities, sadly one of which is they're the most depressed generation ever. But more positively, Generation Z is apparently very concerned with issues of justice. They want to see justice done, so Greta Thunberg would be a good example of that. So they think that justice is good, but I don't think it's really just Generation Z. I think all of us want the right thing to happen. We don't like it when a murderer gets off on some legal technicality. We don't really like it when some corporate criminal who's caused misery for thousands, if not more, gets off with a slap on the wrist. We want justice appropriately to be exercised. And God tells Habakkuk that justice will be done here. He will judge the people of Judah for their wrongdoing. But, that's the good bit, but there's also the disturbing bit uh, of what God says. Because judgment here is going to be via the Babylonians. Now, the Babylonians, we've already heard from what I've read, are ruthless, impetuous and seize dwellings. The passage continues and tells us in verse 7, they are feared and dreaded people, they're a law to themselves. Verse 8, they're fierce. Verse 9 tells us they all come intent on violence, etc, etc. Now, it's as if uh, a person guilty of a supermarket theft is being punished by some massive Asian drug cartel or by some outlaw motorcycle gang, you know, comparatively minor crime being punished by someone worse. The people carrying out the, the judgment here seem to be worse than the wrongdoers. And this is of concern to Habakkuk. So here we get his second question. He says, how can a holy God use a really evil nation, like Babylon, to punish a less evil nation, like Judah? That's the thrust of Habakkuk's second question. Halfway through verse 12 from chapter 1, let's, let's look. It says, you, Lord, Habakkuk speaking to God here, you, Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Then he says, look, of God, look, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked, you know, Babylon, swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Referring to the people of Judah. It's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> but then uh, God starts to give his answer in chapter 2, starting from verse 2. Now, this part wasn't read out. We stopped at chapter 2, verse 1. So, I'm just going to summarise for you what's in the rest of the book. So, in answer to Habakkuk's second question, chapter 2, verse 2 reads, God says, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. This is presumably so that it will be permanently recorded and will become widely known. 
And in fact, that's entirely succeeded, hasn't it? Because here, two and a half thousand years later, we're about to read what God had to, had to say on this. So, the thrust of God's answer here is that Babylon themselves will be judged and punished, and it will be a just and appropriate judgment. Now, one of the ways which God communicates this appropriate, just judgment on Babylon in the future is via five statements of woe in verses uh, 6 to 20 of chapter 2. Now, in each of these five statements of woe, it has a particular structural formula. It starts by saying woe, which is not a happy days Fonzie woe, it's a woe like alas, isn't this bad woe? Then secondly, it gives the reason for the woe and then thirdly, it gives the punishment uh, that results. So, for example, look at chapter 2, verse 6. It starts off, woe, there it is. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. That's referring to the Babylonians and there's the reason for the woe, the, the wrongdoing that they've engaged with. They've engaged in plundering and extortion of other nations. Then what's the punishment? Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. So the plunderer Babylon, at some stage in the future themselves, will be plundered. That seems fair, doesn't it? The judgment here fits the crime. Now, I used to be a lawyer, as you've learned from earlier in the, um, my, my talk, and one of the things that you learn in law is that for a just judgment and response, you need to get... Um, the judgment should be correct. It should be in, in accordance with the truth and then the punishment should be proportional to the crime. So, you don't give a murderer who's convicted just a slap on the wrist. That's not proportional, is it? Conversely, if some you know, teenager is caught shoplifting and steals a, you know, a packet of minties or something rather, you don't give and give him, go and give him life imprisonment, do you? It's not proportional. Judgment and punishment should be, or punishment should be proportional to the crime. Here, the, pu the punishment Babylon is going to get fits the crimes they've committed. And that judgment, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 3 tells us, uh, awaits at an appointed time. And that's almost definitely a reference to the fall of Babylon, which is going to take place in 539 BC, when the Persians, in turn, come in and conquer them. So, uh, the judgment, it has been carried out. So, Habakkuk's learned that judgment and justice will be done. And not only that, I mean, think about it, Habakkuk has had the privilege of having his questions answered by God. Not many of us find ourselves in the situation of posing a question to God and getting a direct answer, right? But Habakkuk got that. But also Habakkuk is quite admirable, I think, as well, because when God tells him something, you can see that he's listening to it. He actually listens to what God says. And I guess at this point, Habakkuk is a good example for us. When God speaks to us, for us, through the pages of Scripture, do we actually listen and pay attention to it? Because Habakkuk did. And we see that at the end of the book, chapter 3 is basically a prayer which Habakkuk prays, uh, expressing, I guess, his admiration and appreciation for God and what he's like. So, chapter 3, verse 2, if you want to turn forward to that, his prayer opens. 
Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. You see, it seems that Habakkuk is more than satisfied with the responses that God has given to his questions. Have you ever found yourself in a difficult, worrying and complex situation and then had it comprehensively solved by someone else for you? And you thought, oh, wow. So, I'm going to give two inadequate examples. Here I am being a lawyer again. Years ago when I was a lawyer, uh, one afternoon I found myself in a situation, which I'll keep in general terms, it was complex, I wasn't sure what the best thing to do was and I wasn't really sure what the ethical thing to do was and someone else was involved in this and I just didn't quite know the way forward, I wanted to do the right thing. What am I going to do? Now fortunately there was another older guy at the firm who was a Christian, so I went into his office and sat down and said, look, you know, John, here's the situation, what am I supposed to do here? And he said, right, thanks for bringing this to me, do not think about it again, I will deal with this entire situation. And he went off and dealt with the entire situation. The whole thing had been dealt with, solved, problem taken away by this guy, John, great man, it was such a relief. And I was, you know, I'm still appreciative as I think about it today. Now, that was really helpful. You might not think that was awe-inspiring, so I'm going to give you a slightly awe-inspiring story now as well. Cricket, John Lampler. I'm talking about cricket now, you ready? So, I was once playing in a first-grade cricket game for Northern Districts versus Mossman back in the mid-1980s, and Mossman got quite a lot of runs. They'd got a really big score, and we had to go out and bat and chase the runs. Now, as I recall it, the Mossman bowling attack had a West Indian international fast bowler, a guy who went on to play for Queensland and a guy who had played for New South Wales. All fast bowlers, so they were pretty good. We had to chase this huge total against these really, really good bowlers. How on earth would we ever do that? It, in one sense, it seemed almost impossible. However, our team had a young guy in it called Mark Taylor. And Mark Taylor went on to score 7,500 test runs and captained the Australian cricket team without much later. He went out and batted, took them on, scored about 170 not out, and uh, our team got the runs and won. And I remember afterwards thinking, I didn't realise he was that good. You know, gee, he is good. It was, uh, you know, in humble cricketing terms, really quite awe-inspiring. Now, if you put both those sorts of things together, you've still got an inadequate idea, but that, you know, there was Habakkuk with that incredible problem. How do we deal with this? Who could do anything? How would it be done? And then God comes in and says, this is how I'm going to do it. And you see that in his prayer in chapter 3, Habakkuk is entirely satisfied and is in awe of God. And so I think it's in the light of this recognition of God's power, God's wisdom and God's justice that he's become totally confident that God is going to deal with things properly and appropriately in the future, even if things seem out of control in the present. And so we can say near the end of the book, those really famous verses that I'm sure many of you have heard, Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19, he can now say this, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour, the Sovereign Lord is my strength. 
Now, note how different here Habakkuk is at the end of the book to the beginning. At the beginning, he was complaining to God. At the end, he seems content. At the beginning, he's sort of challenging God. What are you doing? At the end, it's admiration, awe and trust. Now, if we're followers of Jesus today, asking big questions, for example, in a world riven by injustice and violence, some of which can be quite personal and strike close to home, I think we have even more reason than Habakkuk to be potentially satisfied, content and moved to trust God. And the reason for that is, is we live today on the other side of Jesus. Now let's unpack why Habakkuk briefly was so satisfied, such that he could pray this chapter 3 prayer. I think uh, he sees God's justice, wisdom, power and love. He sees God's justice. God will judge the wrongdoing in the future. He sees God's wisdom. The judgment will be appropriate and proportional, fit the crime. He sees God's power. He can even use evil nations and powerful nations like the Babylonians to do what he wants. And we see God's love and care in that, did you, don't you think it's quite loving and caring of God to interact with Habakkuk in the way he is to answer his questions? Wonderful example. Now today, this side of Jesus' first coming, can I say, I think we see even more of God's justice than Habakkuk. You see, we know now that Jesus will bring justice to everything when he returns. Every wrong will be put right. And if, thanks to Jesus, we've had the justice we deserve put onto Jesus himself, uh, you know, thanks to the cross, justice will still be met there. We see more of God's wisdom. I mean, if you were God and you had the human race who turned against you, but you wanted to save them, but you had to do it in a way which was consistent with love, but also justice, would you have thought up the idea of Jesus dying on the cross? I wouldn't have, but what a brilliant, wise, incredible solution to the human predicament. I mean, we see God's wisdom there. And we also see more of God's power. I mean, for example, Jesus' death on the cross, we see God's power in that he uses even the wrongdoing of the Jewish leaders and the Roman Empire, Pontius Pilate, to bring about the crucifixion, which is the means of our salvation. I mean, what incredible power. And then we also see God's care and love, this side of Jesus as well. For a start, Jesus comes to earth, lives, suffers and does stuff here. We see that when Jesus sees that his friend Lazarus has died, he wept. Jesus is not immune to human emotions. He understands the difficulties of the human condition. And then, of course, there's Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, there was a great Russian writer, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. He was once apparently looking at a painting by a guy called Hans Holbein. In fact, I think it was Hans Holbein the Younger, which meant there must have been an older one. But this guy had painted a painting called Dead Christ in the Tomb. Okay? And apparently when Dostoevsky looked at this painting, he was struck by this profound truth. And that was that no other god had scars. Interesting, isn't it? You know, Jesus' voluntary, self-sacrificial, sin-bearing death on the cross is, is really the greatest sign of someone's love and care in the history of the cosmos, as we reflect on it. So we have even more reason than Habakkuk to be able to trust in God's goodness and justice. Now, despite this, uh, my guess is that most of us would find it difficult to express Habakkuk-like confidence in God 
in the face of evil, suffering and injustice today, even this side of Jesus. And in fact, I think it'd be fair to say that without God, it's almost impossible that we could display Habakkuk-style confidence. But fortunately, with God, nothing is impossible. And there are many examples of perhaps people you know and people throughout human history who have put their trust in God in the most horrendous of circumstances. Let me just give, give you one. For a good example, let's go back to the 19th century. The name Horatio Spafford. He was a lawyer in the United States. In fact, he was a senior partner in a large law firm. He was also a Christian and a friend of the great American evangelist Dwight L. Moody. Now, Spafford was married to a lady called Anna and they had four daughters and they decided to go on a holiday to England where Moody was preaching. But business matters forced Horatio, the husband and father, to stay behind for a little longer and so his wife and his daughters went on the boat uh, to head for the UK. 22nd of November 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship on which his family were travelling collided with, I think, another vessel, and 226 people were killed, including all four of Horatio Spafford's daughters. Annie, aged 12, Maggie, 7, Bessie, 4, and Tanita, 18 months old. His wife survived the tragedy, got to the other end, and upon arriving in the UK, sent a telegram to Spafford, this is the days of telegram, which simply read, saved alone, like she was the only one out of the family who survived. Spafford, uh, before long, was travelling across the Atlantic himself to catch up with and help his grieving wife. And apparently the ship passed on the Atlantic near where the former ship had had its problem and the daughters had died. And apparently it was crossing this section of the Atlantic which inspired him to write what is now a very well-known hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Many of you probably know that. Let me read you the first verse. It opens. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, how on earth could he say that? Well, second verse, I think, helps us. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. I think that is what helped him. So let me conclude. Why don't we pray that like Habakkuk, and particularly as we now know in the light of Jesus, that in times of suffering, and particularly in times of injustice, that we would trust God and that we would trust God's just judgment. So why don't I pray that God would help us to trust in those ways. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, um, this morning as, is a morning where this passage encourages us to reflect on very heavy and deep issues, some of which may be very real to people here today. Lord, we do pray that whatever comes our way, whatever difficulty or injustice that we see around us, that we can rely on your love, your wisdom, your justice and your power, that we would trust you and we would trust in your just judgment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.